what has interested me and what I've developed as a, a so-called web epistemologist is thinking about not just what's specific about the, the culture, so what one would call web or platform vernaculars nowadays, but also what's specific about the methods. Welcome to this episode of Untangling the Web, a podcast of the Web Science Trust. I am Noshir Contractor, and I will be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in thought leaders to explore how the web is shaping society and how society in turn is shaping the web. My guest today is Richard Rogers. You just heard him speak about what he terms digital methods. Richard is a professor and chair of new media and digital culture at the University of Amsterdam. He's also director of the Digital Methods Initiative known for the development of software tools for the study of online data. And he's the author of two award-winning books, Information Politics on the Web and Digital Methods. His most recent book is titled Doing Digital Methods. He's currently working on a book titled Mainstreaming the Fringe, How Misinformation Propagates in Social Media. And Richard was program co-chair for one of the very first web science conferences back in 2013. Welcome, Richard. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. I'm delighted that you're able to join us today. Take us back to those early days when you were first getting involved in the web. What prompted you to think about focusing on the web as the object of study? Well, that takes me way back. So I think it was in the mid-90s when I was asked to write an article about climate change, I started sort of surfing around and noticed that certain websites linked to other websites, but then the websites didn't link back. So that's when I started thinking about creating software that actually maps how websites link to one another and ultimately resulting in a piece of software called the issue crawler, which to this day is still crawling the web and mapping links between websites. Tell us more about the issue crawler. That was definitely one of the first tools to study the web. Tell us what you intended it to do, why you called it the issue crawler, and where it is headed these days. When we started looking at links between websites, what we noticed was that a lot of websites would be linking to one another around social issues. Uh, so we coined the term issue networks uh, and well coined the term sort of repurposed it looking at how not only NGOs and, 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 and academics but also governments and corporations would be interlinking or not linking and so then we came up with a kind of link language so there were critical links this is like you know Greenpeace linking to Shell there were aspirational links there were these NGOs linking to governmental organizations or international organizations and then the international organizations wouldn't link back. So there were these missing links. We called this a sort of the politics of association. And that's what we were putting on display with our link maps. How would you interpret when one website linked to another and the other did not return the link or reciprocate the link? And I mean, it's about reputation, largely. We found that, for example, in, in one small study of Armenian NGOs, so they would link 
sort of copiously to one another. And then they would also sort of aspirationally link to UN organizations and the UN organizations would link to one another, but then they wouldn't link to the Armenian organization. So, so it's a kind of a lack of recognition. It's, it's, it's about reputation. It's about relevance in some sense. How relevant is web linking today as compared to what it was when you were first developing Issue Crawler? So it's interesting when I first started writing about uh, hyperlinks, I, I talked about them in terms of a sort of a link economy, a link economy actually supplanting an earlier economy, which I refer to as the hit economy. Uh, and so now you could argue that the like economy has taken over from the link economy. You know, and, and of course, we've seen the sort of widespread industrialization of the, of the hyperlink you also see that links have changed, right? So, so it's, it's quite actually quite complicated, more complicated than it used to be to map links. You talked about the evolution from the linked economy to the like economy. Tell us more about what you mean by the like economy. There's a term that I sort of repurposed from sort of critical business studies called vanity metrics. And so I've been studying quote-unquote, vanity metrics. Uh, and, and this is, you know, the follower accounts, like accounts, view counts, all of these numbers that show how well you're doing uh, online, especially in social media. This is what you could summarize as the like economy. One of your major contributions to web science over the years has been your work in the area of web epistemology. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got interested in that, what it means, and uh, what have we learned about that? Generally speaking, web epistemology is the study of the web as a particular knowledge and or information culture with its own specificities. Uh, What has interested me and what I've developed as a a so-called web epistemologist is thinking about um, not just what's specific about the, the culture, so what one would call web or platform vernaculars nowadays, but also what's specific about the methods. And so what I've d- tried to develop over the years are what I've called digital methods. What are some of the things that you have unearthed that we would not have been able to do if we didn't think about the web from an epistemological standpoint? I mean, if you if you think about web science in particular, I think it, it, it came from a, a particular insight about the web, that the web is not just like a, a cyberspace. So as we once thought, right, this sort of realm apart, it's not necessarily only to be studied as the virtual or as a virtual society, but rather that the web has interesting societal data. How do you then capture this data and think about making findings that you then ground in some ways amongst those ways would be to to ground them quote unquote online so this is one of the one of the notions i've tried to develop uh, online groundedness so the idea of using web data to make findings about what's happening in society and culture and then grounding them in the online of course we can triangulate we can, we can bring in other data from, you know, the ground, but we can also bring in data from different realms online. One of the things that you touched on here is the ability to be able to study all of society, not just the online world, but by using tools that are gleaning information from multiple platforms online. Could you give me an example to make this more tangible, a concrete example of an issue that is more pervasive, but that you're able to glean information from one or more online sources to get insights into it? 
Well, I mean, you know, the flagship project was Google Flu Trends. Uh, and that was a very interesting project, and it ran for for a number of years. and And what it did was it anticipated the incidence of flu by search queries. And what went wrong with Google Flu Trends is is, is a sort of just a general warning about this sort of, or admonition about this sort of work, right? So when people are searching, are they searching because they have symptoms? <coughs> Or are they searching because it's flu season and they've heard about it, flu season on the TV news? So is the phenomenon happening in the wild or is it happening in media? I mean, that's for me was one of the more interesting examples also because of the critique thereof, but there are others as well. So for a number of years, for example, queries on allrecipes.com were used in order to sort of map the geography of taste in the U.S. This area that you just talked about, the example that you gave, which is fascinating, is part of the infrastructure that you've been developing uh, more generally called the Digital Methods Initiative. The goal of that is to do research that goes beyond the study of online culture only. Can you tell us more about the genesis of the Digital Methods Initiative and what are the kinds of things that you could observe and study as part of the Digital Methods Initiative? Yeah, so it, it goes back to the, the beginning of web science, in fact. So it goes back to 2007, and it's been around since then. And we've developed, I think, about 100 tools, uh, and most of it is situated software. So we come up with software that we need for a particular research project. And then a lot of it sticks around. Um, it becomes more sort of like general purpose, but other Tools go away depending on use, but right, right now we maintain quite quite a lot, and we use this software both for societal and cultural research as well as sort of media research, media critique. More specifically, a recent study that we did was we looked at uh, what happened to about twenty so-called extreme internet celebrities when they were deplatformed from mainstream social media platforms, and then they migrated to Telegram. So we built a Telegram data extraction tool in order to see what they were doing online there and to see whether or not they were acting in the same ways that they were acting before, for example. And what did you find? Well, we found a, a few things, some, some intuitive, but a couple of things that were really counterintuitive. So the, the intuitive findings were that their audience had thinned considerably counterintuitive was that they were still posting the same amount or they were posting very, very frequently. Uh, and this went on for quite a few months, despite the fact the platform had less sort of oxygen giving capacity in the sense that there were fewer viewers. But the most counterintuitive thing that we found was that their language became far less offensive over time which then I mean, that led to a number of different speculations. Uh, one speculation was that maybe they were offensive before for their audience and not, they're not just generally that offensive, for example, um, or, or that they, they entered such an offensive space that they couldn't be more offensive than the space that they were in. So these are two different scenarios, let's say. But nevertheless, th those were some of the counterintuitive findings. I want to take us to an exhibit that you were involved in, which was featured at the ZKM, entitled Making Things Public. 
Atmospheres of Democracy that was uh, curated by Bruno Latour and Peter Weibel. That sounds fascinating. Tell us more about this exhibit. We built a couple of exhibitions, interactives, let's call them. One is called the Issue Barometer. And the Issue Barometer would basically show the rise and fall of attention in particular social issues. So we took a set of NGOs, multi-issue ones, also single-issue ones, made an issue list on the basis of what it is that they were campaigning for on their websites. And then over the course of three years, we followed their campaigning behavior, uh, showing how attention to particular issues rises and falls. To what extent do you think this helped illuminate this issue for uh, the general audience or for policymakers? Do you see that these kinds of tools might increase literacy or awareness about some of these issues? Yes, I think so. This is sort of issue trend research, if you will. So you can imagine policymakers these days with issue trend dashboards. So this is one of the earliest ones, uh, so to speak. This was also in some ways a mirror for non-governmental organizations. So are you demonstrating commitment despite changes in funder agendas and sticking with particular issues? Or are you sort of following the money, so to speak? And so, so this was also part of the critical uh, angle to this particular exhibition. To what extent are you able to use these kinds of methods to uncover disparities that may exist between the global South and the West, for example, or other forms of disparities that we see in society? Are there some examples from your work that show how these methods can bring exposure and bring those issues and those disparities to light? What I just described, colleagues and I termed this issue drift. Non-governmental organizations or, or, or governmental organizations um, sort of sort of drifting away from things that are important uh, when they could be, you know, sticking with them. So, so one of the kind of critical projects that we undertook a, a, along these lines was called Issue Celebrities. We looked at a very important issue in the Global South, and that is awareness of mines uh, and the clearing of mines and landmine-related injuries. And uh, we looked in particular at uh, a, a charity or a funding organization that was, that was set up by Paul McCartney and his wife, wife at the time, Heather Mills. And it was quite serious. So they raised um, year after year something like $4 million, which was quite close to the total UN budget for the same activity. Uh, but then they broke up. So what happens to the issue? What happens to this sort of global South issue when these you know celebrities break up and then and then leave it? And 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 so it's it's you know it seems cynical on the one hand, but it's quite serious on the other with when we're talking about this kind of money. So this is this is one project that addresses that particular aspect. One of the things that uh, you're currently working on, I'm trying to bring us into the present, and you're working on this book on mainstreaming the fringe, how misinformation propagates on social media. In the run-up to the 2020 U.S. elections, uh, we studied the extent of the so-called misinformation problem with a cross-platform analytical approach on seven social media platforms. And we found that each of them in quite specific ways, but generally speaking, 
they all marginalize the mainstream. So for example, Twitter sort of amplifies what is referred to oftentimes as hyperpartisan sources. On TikTok, they use particular sort of ironicizing, ironic sounds to instill mistrust when a mainstream media clip, uh, for example, is played. But in all very specific ways, each of them sort of marginalizes the mainstream. And, and of course, this has you know, quite some implications for you know, taking seriously news. I'm still stuck back on what you mentioned earlier about TikTok. Tell me more about what you mean by that. TikTok is sort of music-driven platform. And, and on the interface, when a particular sound is used, you can click on the sound and see other videos with the same sound. And so you can sort of map the use of particular sounds. Okay, so there are certain sounds which are used uh, to instill mistrust in what it is that you're looking at. Uh, and so this is this is quite interesting. And it turns out that th a lot of the top, let's call them political videos on TikTok in the run up to the 2020 US presidential elections, were using those sounds. It develops a, a kind of new type of misinformation. A lot of the videos are satirical, right? So that you think that, oh, you know, it's, it's no big deal. But at the same time, the satirical videos are introducing other sort of misinformation techniques. So you're getting these hybrid types. I think across social media platforms, you get new hybridities that, that, that complicate these sort of typical typologies of, of misinformation. But the one on TikTok we, I found was particularly interesting. I think one of the things that has recently emerged in web science is the endeavor to study multiple platforms. You, Richard, have been at the forefront of being able to look at these multiple platforms. What I found interesting about the examples that you gave is that in many ways, while multiple platforms might allow us to triangulate some insights, you're also finding that each of these platforms are used in distinct ways. Recently, I've been working on the difficult problem of commensurability in, in cross-platform analysis. Especially in marketing research, a lot of the work that's done on cross-platform analysis is about the study of engagement. So each platform has metrics, but each platform is also quite specific, right? So you can't just blindly think that a hashtag usage is the same in Twitter as it is on Facebook as it is somewhere else. My sort of short answer is that you, you need to understand the quote-unquote platform vernaculars. So which types of digital objects are privileged and which are not privileged. And with that knowledge, you can then move towards so, uh, something that is a more satisfactory uh, uh, striving for commensurability. That's really been a challenge. As we begin to wind down here, one of the questions that I had for you that intrigued me is, I noticed that you've been spending some time focusing on a technical definition of memes. Tell us more about what got you interested in this particular topic at this particular point in time. There was a Facebook engineer who was quoted a year or two ago saying, you know, 95% of the content that's passing through are memes. And I was like, oh. What I came across is that, and this is this towards a technical definition, this is what I'm working on. What I came across is depending on the software, the memes are defined differently. 
So for example, Know Your Meme, which is this sort of uh, well-known uh, database that started in 2006 or seven, it has a, a particular way of thinking about a meme. And, and that is that it's sort of this special internet phenomenon that requires a literacy in order to understand. On the other hand, if you go to CrowdTangle, which is Facebook's data collection software, both for research as well as for marketing, uh, it has a meme search. What it finds are images with text. Okay, so images with text is a very, very roomy definition of a, of a meme. And the database definition is quite different. Okay, and then in the middle um, are a number of other ones. What I was looking at recently were, okay, what, what's a meme according to Know Your Meme? What's, what's a meme according to, for example, IRA uh, uh, disinformation operatives? Etc. Etc. So I went through about six or seven of these different ways of thinking about memes. And what would these definitions allow us to do more specifically? You know, what what is the advantage of creating this classification? What, what new insights could we gain by using this classification? When thinking about how to study memes, you, you want to think about how to sort of demarcate this this phenomenon, right? And there are a variety of different ways. And I think that I think that that's the largest contribution. I mean, more specifically, what I've been doing is is thinking about um, different kinds of sort of automation practices of meme detection. What we're finding, generally speaking, is that the automated detection mechanisms are currently not that good at detecting what uh, a sort of person or set of people who are doing close reading would call a meme. Wow, this is interesting. Thank you again, Richard, for giving us these little peeks with specifics and all the rich kind of research that you've been doing and all your contributions over the years to broader understanding of web science. This has just been a fascinating discussion and I wish you the best as you continue some of these efforts and we'll be tracking them in the years ahead. Yeah, till then, my pleasure. Untangling the Web is a production of the Web Science Trust. This episode was edited by Molly Lubas. I am Noshir Contractor. You can find out more about our conversation today in the show notes. Thanks for listening.